most of our recent investor interviews here in the Tech Emergence podcast have been local Bay Area investors. Our in-person interviews at Excel Ventures and Canvas Ventures were done with just you know a couple Uber rides on my side and an in-person chat. Uh, we don't get to speak very often with investors overseas, uh, particularly not in the Far East. This week's episode, we interview Tack Lowe, who works with Xeroth, uh, Z-E-R-O-T-H dot A-I, uh, which is an accelerator and, and uh, sort of cohort investing firm based in Hong Kong. Uh, that focuses specifically on AI and machine learning. We're certainly seeing in the last two or three years a lot of companies uh, make that transition. We had Ben on from Bootstrap Labs. I've been to their offices on a number of occasions as well. They're entirely focused in this department. Safe to say we're going to see more and more firms with this particular focus, but we haven't interviewed that many, again, who are, uh, or any at all as of this current recording, who are in the Far East. Um, So TAC speaks with us about when he saw AI start to take off out there, and, and if that's any different than we saw the takeoff of machine learning uh, here in the Bay Area, um, as well as some of the consumer differences and how they interact with technology, how they choose uh, what company to become a customer of, uh, and how they interact with mobile, and how some of those differences in the Asian market, so to speak, um, might drive different business opportunity for how AI is used and in what context it's used. That's particularly interesting and rich information. I found that to be the most interesting part of this particular interview. I really appreciate TAC putting up with all the crazy time zone hubbub that we had to put up with to get this interview put together, but I'm grateful that it went down. So hopefully you enjoy this episode. This is TAC Low with Xeroth. So, Tack, first and foremost, it's rare that we get to speak with folks in the Far East. You know, you're in Hong Kong, and AI, geez, two years ago for sure, maybe four years ago on a lighter level became very, very popular. Now there's accelerators honed in on AI like yourselves and investors who are knuckling down in this space. A lot of people building companies or have URLs with a .ai sort of like you guys do with Xeroth. When did the big wave hit out there for the popularity of AI? When did you start to see the flood of companies and interest in that space where you are? Well, one, thank you for having me on the show, Dan. I mean, I think the trends have been around for a long time, right? In the sense, like the academic research in, in terms of deep learning AI has been around. In Japan and in Korea, it's been around for a long time. But I think the trends probably start to show when AlphaGo beats uh. all, right? So I wouldn't say Go is like more of a game here than chess is, but at least everyone's familiar with the game Go versus in the United States. Not everyone's interested, nor has anyone interacted with Go. Yeah. You know, when an AI beat a human player, right? And that was one, right? A game that was familiar to almost everybody. Second, it was a Korean player, right? That was, you know, and it's usually, this is a game that's usually in the purview of most Asians master the game. The very few kind of Westerners are top yep. of the Go game. So yep, yep. I guess it got a little bit personal. <laughs> when that came around. So I wow. think um, I think at least that kind of kickstarted everyone's imagination, at least on this side of the world. Yeah, curious. Okay, so it's funny how kind of the big press events boot things off. You know, I often reference, whether it's in articles or in interviews, sort of the big sort of image breakthroughs with Jeff Hinton in 2012-ish when sort of the big leaps in deep learning sort of kicked in and a lot of people became interested and the attention started to kick in. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense that Go would have sort of hit home a lot more 
in the homeland of Go. And as, as you had mentioned, a lot of people in the West, maybe not as familiar, certainly not as good at the game as, as the folks out in the Far East. It's funny how the newsworthy stuff sort of determines the trajectory and attention of the people starting companies. And now you're in the business of investing in those companies, working with yep. those companies out there. Out of curiosity, I mean, we, we get a lot of sort of the purview of startups mm. at large. There's a lot of Israeli folks in, in this game, mm. a disproportionate number of Israelis interested in AI. Mm. A lot of Americans. Mm. And I have a decent sense of sort of what the balance is between healthcare and marketing and what kind of applications. Mm. What sorts of companies did you see really start to raise funds and build traction once the wave started to hit out there as well in terms of the popularity of AI? What kind of focus areas really stood out to you as kind of domains where there was a lot of attention at once? Yeah, so I think there's two parts of this. I mean, one, the caveat is anything that is raised in China usually is, it's more expensive to, as investors invest in China, actually, than it is in in Silicon Valley. So the valuations are a little bit high. So that's the only caveat, right? So to just to temper one's expectations with racing. But in terms of the themes that are pretty prevalent, right? So it runs a gamut, but it's usually broadly, I think, for the last year, year and a half, Tom's driving is big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so anything that re- that's related to Thomas driving, whether it's computer vision with the Thomas driving or training data or road data or whatever that may be, it's usually pretty hot. Face, like anything that's computer vision or more accurate kind of face recognition is pretty big. There are two companies in China. One is Face Plus Plus. I think the other one is called SenseTime. And they're two big kind of facial recognition companies. You know, that's a pretty hot area. Yep. And I think overall, then you've got like platforms, Sentient.ai, the, you know, most well-funded companies actually started from Hong Kong. Go and it was figure. a bunch wow, of I was finance to- guys. Totally unaware of that. Yeah. that. That's in fact true, huh? Yeah. I think, you know, historically, I think that the talent or a lot of the talent actually went to the finance industry. So Hong Kong being a finance town, Tokyo being a finance town, you know, I think a lot of that talent kind of moved over to, to machine learning. I think probably the last category I'll say is robotics, but that's kind of a you know, Japanese specific theme. A lot of it is because of healthcare, because of the aging population. So a desire for kind of an alternative population, if you will, uh, <laughs> to be able to take care of the elderly. You know, I've not I've, an alternative fact. Yeah. An alternative, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're not gonna we're not gonna jump on that trend on this podcast. Yeah. But yeah, I've heard similar notions. I mean, I actually did a very interesting interview years ago with a fellow who was from the states and moved over to be a tech journalist in Japan for many years. A lot of curious insights around sort of the influence of if I'm not mistaken, like Taoist thought in the sort of more openness to the idea of granting personhood to non-human things in sort of Japanese culture. Yeah. That is like a cultural overlay, just to sort of more yeah. open to that. And that's a very interesting thing. You almost wouldn't assume that that would vary that much culture to culture. But from what I've heard, the Japanese are way more open to whether it be a caretaker for an elderly parent, whether it would be someone behind the counter at a restaurant Sort yeah. of being a machine rather than being a person. Has it mostly been healthcare where you've seen the focus there? Obviously, there's a lot of dollars in that domain. It runs two gamuts. I mean, I think there are two kind of themes. One is the fact that it's elderly healthcare. That's more of a practical usage of robots. The other one is yeah. consumer kind of consumer robot. I mean, overall, there's a trend. Right? It's funny in Japan, one could argue that it's more of an anomaly. There's just a passion for robots, whether I think it's a Taoist tradition or whether it's Gundam growing up or Power Rangers. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's just, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a big theme, Macross or whatever it may be. So I think that's one bit. The, the, the more practical concern is kind of the Asian population. But there's a huge kind of consumer robot desire as well. So a lot of people will buy personal robots just for fun, try something out. 
I do hear of a lot of robotics companies, personal robot companies that go to Japan and try to race because you just have more of a buying like kind of market there. Yeah, more of an openness to the technology at large. I think, you know, the United States had Hanson Robotics over here for a while. And if mm. I'm not mistaken, I think they moved their headquarters to Tokyo. I forget where they were in the US, but they were just like, yep, we know where the market is. We know where people are actually open to this kind of thing. And clearly there's a lot of traction there as well. Yeah. Uh, when I go to yeah. your site, you know, and take a look at, you know, what you're investing in these days, I see a good deal of sort of chatbots, personal assistance as a big part of the mix as they are over here. Mm. How long has that been sort of a trend and been picking up on your side? I mean, you've probably been pitched by, you know, a hundred times more companies than you've invested in this space. When did that start to pick up out there, I can imagine it's a much harder problem with the characters of the various Asian languages yeah. than it is with Roman yeah. numerals or whatnot. But yeah, I'm, I'm interested. Yeah, so chatbots, I think it's kind of started a little bit earlier, actually, than the West, but they didn't quite call it chatbots. So WeChat was kind of the start of everything. People actually interact with Messenger kind of applications very different than in the West. So hmm. you guys are more used to typing. In, in Asia, yes, typing is... Well, it also differs in different countries, but let's say for China, because it is complex, it's more complex to write letters or characters. A lot of people actually speak, right? Yeah. And have recorded messages. You know, WhatsApp has that as well. But, you know, in, in Asia, that's taken advantage of not as much in the West. So I would say like it's one, it's a very different interface. So I would say chatbots can take off over here, but it's just, again, people that try to solve like you know, chatbots in Asia need to kind of think differently. There's a lot of functionality that WeChat has allowed earlier than Facebook. Let's just say Facebook is like the forefront of Messenger, right? WeChat has some payments, has a lot of payments, has allowed uh, different apps and different things that you could buy. You essentially can go around China, Shanghai, Beijing without any cash because it's all WeChat enabled, right? Whether you want to add somebody's business card, someone's contact, you want to add someone's business, you want to pay, you want to call a taxi, it's all over WeChat. So like your life, your entire life is actually on WeChat. So the idea of chatbots and chatbots being more prevalent, I think it was much more developed and much more easier as an idea than I think in the West because you just literally, your entire life is on WeChat anyway. It's only one interface, yeah. right? And if there's only one interface in a mobile internet. And so you're more accustomed and more used to actually living in that space versus like your attention is divided, right? So you don't have one interface dictating your entire flow and your entire kind of view or you're jumping into the mobile reality. So in many ways, it was a little bit earlier because of the culture and the people were accustomed to living in WeChat, in the Messenger, versus in the West where you have five different apps or six different apps. Yes, yes. That's interesting. And I guess initially, I think when people hear that, you know, China limited a lot of Google and Facebook and whatnot. I mean, Google makes mm. some sense. I mean, you know, there's a lot of stuff on the internet about all this mm. wacky, wacky democracy crap that some of the rest mm. of the world is given a swing at. And you see where that gets us sometimes. But Facebook, you know, Twitter, that kind of stuff, you think like, oh man, you know, that seems really limiting and, and sort of difficult to understand. But there's maybe an advantage to the fact that China kind of locked out the rest of the world and built its own ecosystem because now they really have a strong one as opposed to one that's just dominated by foreign countries and foreign companies. It sounds like WeChat really has become so thoroughly entrenched. Mm. You're talking about your life being on WeChat. That's, I mean, no matter how much you're into Facebook, you don't do everything through Facebook. No matter how much you're into yeah. Twitter or Instagram, yeah. you don't do everything on Twitter or Instagram. It sounds like yeah. WeChat has really stepped that up to kind of dominate mobile interactions and interfaces altogether. 
In China, that's correct. Yep. Um, but it's kind of funny. Every country has its own kind of particular niche, right? So line in, in Japan, cacao in Korea, Viber, I think is big within the Filipino kind of community and Filipino diaspora. Vietnam has its own thing. So yes, largely true. WeChat dominates China. But, you know, WhatsApp is also pretty popular as well. And that explains actually the Facebook acquisition of WhatsApp, right? Yeah. Like there's a lot more usage in this part of the world about WhatsApp. And this is pre-encryption, right? No one really cared about encryption. It was just easier to use. So, yes, to your larger point, it's much more concentrated, whether it's protectionist or whatever you want to call it. Yep. I think it's in some ways it's better. In some ways it's more efficient, right? Yeah. Sometimes it's more efficient because it's all in one kind of app. Is innovation as quick or, you know, the more competition, the more innovation, right? Yep. I would argue that WeChat is a winner, but, you know, it's not like they didn't have any competition as well. Weibo was around and that, you know, that was the Twitter, if you will, of China. Yeah, and they yeah. tried to kind of go along the same bit as well. So it's not like there wasn't competition and it's not like they don't have to innovate. You know, I think it's a very different type of innovation. You're trying to innovate one billion people at a time. And it's a very short attention span, like the consumer mindset in China. I won't say much shorter, but it's shorter actually than the U.S. You have to build that fickleness into your product. And so you constantly have to change because people will just get tired and not want to do anything on your platform, right? So you have to build that fickleness in. It's a very tough crowd. This is, it's, it's a much tougher consumer market. This is interesting. You know, you certainly have a better insight on this than most of our interviewees, you know, what these core differences are. You, you brought up a couple notions and we've done some interviews with Baidu. At, they have a Silicon Valley AI lab mm. down here with a couple Stanford guys who are kind of running the show there, Andrew and, and some other folks. That's right. And they've, they've talked about sort of the prevalence of voice, partially due to yep. a lot of us out here in the West, you know, it was a little bit clunky and weird for us to get used to, you know, answering emails on mobile. I mean, eventually we got used to it, mm. but we started off with a friggin' screen in front of us and a keyboard. And, and for a lot of the Asian world, that's not the case. And also typing mm. is harder. And so voice has such a big take out there in, in many regards. You brought that up as, as a bit of a difference. You're talking about this fickleness as a bit of a difference. I, mm. I'm interested in what those other major trends are that kind of separate some of the technical innovation, some of the, the elements of, of sort of this technical field uh, and its considerations for companies out there as opposed to over here. Talk to me about what you meant by yeah. fickleness and, and more fickleness out there. Give me Give me a little bit of color onto that statement. Yeah, fickleness, I guess it's short attention span. Mm-hmm. WeChat is in a fortunate position to not only dominate, I think, in terms of app, but in terms of like features within the app so that people continue to kind of go there. But fickleness in terms of like, if there was an app that wasn't fun, right? Or, you know, there was a popular app where people were actually putting faces on there and themselves, right? Dog faces. And so it was facial recognition, but they would add dog faces or, you know, leopard faces or leopard print on, on top. And so, you know, people jump from, app to app pretty frequently mm. download apps pretty frequently and delete apps pretty frequently like so that's just from a consumer trend perspective or a consumer preference perspective if you will yeah. so you also had like a technical question or you said well yeah yeah i'm just interested kind of at large into what those uh, differences in behavior are for you know considerations oh, okay. in building a company you know one of them is voice you know the prevalence of mobile first yeah. really being true out there not really true in, in the yeah. United States as much. What are some of those other differences that you think these Asian companies are taking into consideration given their markets as opposed to ours? Yeah, I think, you know, because, you know, like you mentioned with Google and Facebook before, right? So I think building stuff is a little bit more challenging. Coding stuff is a little bit more challenging in, in China because I wouldn't say all sites are blocked, but a lot of 
you know, Google Drive is blocked, for example, right? Dropbox is blocked. So, you know, some repositories and tools that you would use in the West is uh, is okay. not the same. You could VPN in, but it's unpredictable, right? And even if you can VPN, it's always oftentimes slow. So, you know, building is a little bit slower. I think cultural nuances is key. If you take a look at the, the Uber thing, you know, as much as Uber tried, and I think they were somewhat successful in China, right? More successful than other companies. You know, you still have to manage political risk, incumbent risk, and there's certain ways to do it. I don't think they did it that well. I mean, they did, they chose the right tactic, meaning they had Chinese investors, you know, those investors helped them go into China. Not every kind of company chooses that, right? And that may be a, a downfall. This is, uh, I'd actually like to just get a, a couple quick perspectives on that. I know we're sure. coming pretty close yeah. to time, but I think this is very insightful sure. here, Tak. Sure. Y- you mentioned political buy-in and opposition is, is more of a reality yeah. out there and that Uber used the right tactic. This is very curious because the same degree of Machiavellian thought, for whatever reason, I don't think is taken into consideration by an Israeli company moving to New York or a Netherlands company moving to San Francisco. Mm. I don't think they're as much considering like political alliances in an overt sure. way. How do you mean that out there? What's the reality yeah. of those kind of considerations? So I used to be in the United States Army, right? So I take all risk as risk. And so all risks can be managed. And so whether it's political risk or whatever risk, it's all the same to me. And so moving to China, right, it's political risk in the sense you have to, in some ways, protect yourself against kind of the political headwinds and governmental headwinds that might or, or, mm. or I don't know what they call it, headwinds or backwinds? Or no, it would be, headwinds the, is the right term, yeah. Sometimes they're, they're winds that go your way and winds that don't. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and both, so you have to yes. put, yeah. Yeah, so you have to kind of protect yourself against that. You know, that's one consideration, and that's not like a, a small consider, a consideration. I mean, it's a you know, you should actively think about that. And I think wow. WeWork also did a very good job. You know, they raised from Chinese investors before they moved into China. I think that was incredibly smart for them to do that. To your point about other companies going into the U.S., I think it's actually very similar as well, right? Oh, wow. It might not be called political risks. But it could be called community risk, right? Or it could be called the other risk, right? If, if you move into the U.S., you know, I worked at Techstars New York, and we had a couple of foreign teams. You know, if you come in here, if you go into New York and you say, we're a non-U.S. team, it's hard for people to hire because it's hard to get American culture right. It's hard to hire for, let's say, for example, you know, the team was Dutch. It's hard to hire for Dutch culture when you're in the U.S. You have to inherently, like, mm. become American. And that's not an easy thing for people to do, right? The aggressiveness, the upfrontness, it's not an easy cultural trait to assimilate, if you will, to learn very, very quickly. So, you know, it's a very different type of risk as well. So, you know, they're all risks and they're all just risks that need to be managed. Interesting. Okay. So what you're getting at is international movement, uh, you know, into the U.S., into another country, into China. China, you've got some political considerations, but almost all international movement, you're going to have some cultural considerations to think yeah. about. It's just added onto the plate. You've also got this other stuff in China you really should think about if you're going to go big, but it, but it's not terribly different from what you need to think about anyway. Yeah, I think it's actually almost all the same. I mean, in many ways, going to China is a little bit easier, right? So you have a little bit of cultural risk, you have political risk, you have to manage. But honestly, like in China, aggression wins, right? So as long as you're making money, you're be growing, making money, People want to work with you, right? In many ways, it's simple. It's extremely capitalistic. As long as you're making money, you're talking sense, right? And as long as you're talking sense, we can do business. 
So it's not that dissimilar in some ways as well. In some ways, it's easier. It's almost easier because you know people's incentives and motivations. So it just depends. Yeah. And like you said as well, you know, sometimes as a company raising out there in Hong Kong, if you do have a little bit less competition from other companies on some scale, you may be able to garner higher valuations. You you may be able to raise in circumstances where maybe, you know, on Market Street here in San Francisco, you may not be able to. So there may be additional opportunities and upsides as well for people to consider. You know, I tell a lot of companies, right, that are thinking about going to the US or going to China or going wherever, right, you know, where the market is. It's almost easier to kind of stay in your home country and then try to go you know, let's say San Francisco and try to raise. And then if there is optimism or if there's positivity, then actually move. Go, moving to a new place, I think, is inherently very difficult because you don't have a community, right? You don't have yeah. a community around you. You can't inherently hire without that community. You don't have connections. It's just a very, very hard proposition unless you raise through an investor. And through that investor, that investor gives you that community where you have a safe landing. So it's almost easier to raise from afar, pretend like you live in San Francisco. I know a lot of companies that actually raise from, let's say, London, and they just fly over to San Francisco every three weeks. And investors think they're from San Francisco. They just happen to have <laughs> be able to only do a meeting every three weeks, right? Oh, because man. they're only in town for three weeks. They don't say they're flying to town. They're just like, oh, we're ready to meet now, right? Or we can meet three weeks later. You know, so there's, you know, you can hire a hot desk at Galvanize or WeWork and be able to pretend that you're from San Francisco when you really aren't. Yeah, Tack, I'm sure you see plenty of that, and I certainly do. We look at dozens and dozens of companies a week, and there's a lot of websites with San Francisco offices and a whole bunch of people in the Czech Republic, and you sort of wonder yep. how it's going down. But yeah, good call on that, and I think that is an important consideration. We can have that as kind of our closing thought here for founders who are aiming to move, whether you're going out east, whether you're coming out west, having an investor who really has skin in the game with you, he's not just friendly with you and has talked with you or you have good rapport, but has skin in the game with you, that's that's an into an ecosystem where somebody else is rooting for you and, and introducing you and kind of inculcating you, if you will, to the new place where mm -hmm. you need to go. And that's a consideration that no company should sort of go without before making a move. So I appreciate you bringing that one up. Tack, that's all that we have for time, but I am glad you got to share okay. your insights and I'm grateful we got to cool. have you on the program. Thanks for being here. No, thanks for having me again. That wraps up today's episode here on the Tech Emergence Podcast, and thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to stay in touch with our latest interviews with C-level executives and top researchers and thinkers in the domains of AI and the intersection of technology and intelligence, then make sure to subscribe here on iTunes. Or visit us on our main website at techemergence.com, where you can see all of our interviews broken down by category, as well as articles, news, market research, and trends in artificial intelligence. If you found this episode particularly thought-provoking, feel free to leave your thoughts in a review here on iTunes, or you can feel free to reach out to us at our main website. Thanks, as always, for tuning in, and I'll catch you next week.